Welcome to the Lead On Podcast, where we discuss issues related to Christian leadership and particularly uh, how to be more effective Christian leaders today. Uh, I'm Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, and it's my pleasure to talk with you on these podcasts about uh, issues that I think are important and that will help you to become more effective in leadership. I speak at a lot of leadership conferences, and sometimes if I'm speaking in a workshop or seminar format, rather than uh, predetermine what I'm going to speak on, I'll hand out a list of topics and say, you know, I'm prepared to speak on any of these. I want to speak on the one that's most important to you. And I let the group actually vote on what they would like to be taught. When I've done that, uh, two or three uh, different issues always seem to rise to the top. And today's issue is one of those. Today, I'd like to talk with you about developing courage for Christian leadership. Now, the call for courageous leadership uh, and the the reason that courage surfaces when I give people an opportunity to choose their own seminar topic is because I think there's a general sense among Christian leaders today that uh, these are perilous times and that it's going to require more and more uh, courage from us to, to continue to live and give the kind of leadership and guidance that is, uh, that's called for in churches and ministry organizations. And so uh, let's start by defining leadership, uh, courage in leadership and then looking at some models and looking at some ways that we can uh, practice uh, more courageous leadership. So what's a good definition? Well, my definition of courageous leadership is this. Choosing to obey God, no matter the opposition, the perceived challenges are the anticipated outcomes. Now, those three phrases are very significant. Choosing to obey God no matter the opposition. The perceived challenges are the anticipated outcomes. Now, notice the words perceived and anticipated. Courage is about facing up to what might happen. None of us really know fully what's going to happen in any difficult situation. But courage is facing up to what our perceived challenges may be and the anticipated outcomes may be. So, courage stands strong in the face of what might happen to us when we provide the kind of leadership that's needed. Now, one of the best examples of courageous leadership in the Bible is in Daniel chapter 3. It's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, the story unfolds this way. There was a man, a king named Nebuchadnezzar. He erected a 90-foot-tall statue and organized a marching band to play for his celebratory worship experience where everyone was supposed to bow down and worship this statue. Well, the band played. Everyone fell down except for these three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when it was reported to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, that they had not worshipped him, he was infuriated, infuriated. And so he said to them, if you don't worship, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied in Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, this way. Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you to know as king that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Now this 
uh, is an incredible story of courage. Several points. First, these young men faced a powerful authority, an enraged king who had the capacity to take their lives. They faced daunting options. They were facing idolatry, which they knew was wrong before God, or death, which they knew would be painful and difficult to endure. They had two options, and neither of them were very desirable. They also understood that their, choices, that their choice would have consequences. Uh, they understood that if they chose not to worship the statue, and that they were thrown into the fiery furnace, that God might deliver them, or God might let them die. They knew that choices have consequences, and that those consequences could be good, or they could be bad. And this is the most courageous aspect of the story. They chose to obey God and leave the outcome to him, believing that whether he intervened and delivered them or not, doing the right thing was vitally important. So these young men are a significant model for Christian leadership today. Now, that raises this question, though. Uh, how many of us are actually facing a fiery furnace? Well, probably no one. Not facing a literal situation like these young men were facing. So then that begs the question, is courageous leadership like this still needed today? And I think the answer is yes. And I'd like to outline uh, a number of ways that I think courageous leadership is still needed today. First, uh, courage is needed to make decisions. Leaders, uh, really at the essence of what they do on a daily basis, are decision makers. We decide where to spend the money, where to deploy the resources, who to hire, who to fire. Uh, we decide uh, what programs to start, start, what programs to stop. We make decisions. And quite frankly, most people in our world don't like to make decisions. They don't like the pressure. They don't like the responsibility. Uh, they don't like the tension or the consequences that, that come with being the decision maker. But leadership or decision making really is at the essence of leadership. A number of years ago when I became the executive director of the Northwest Baptist Convention, my youngest son was uh, only five years old. Uh, I obviously had changed roles. I was no longer his pastor. He, never, he, he no longer saw me Sunday by Sunday doing what I do. One day he asked his mother, what does daddy do? And she said, well, he works at the Northwest Baptist Convention. And my son said, well, I know that, but what does daddy do? And my wife gave an insightful answer. She said, well, your daddy listens to people and then he makes the decisions. That's really the essence of what I did and what, in leadership as a state denominational leader. I listened to a lot of people and then I made decisions. It takes courage to always be the decision maker, to be the place where the buck stops, to be the one who finally has to say, this is what we're going to do. Second, it takes courage today to hold doctrinal positions. In the world today, there's a great plurality of religious belief and a great pl pl plurality even within religions of sects and denominations. Well, it takes courage to hold to your convictions. For example, uh, evangelical Christians believe that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. 
And that is a difficult doctrine to hold in the face of so many alternatives that are being proposed for how a person can find eternal life. And nevertheless, we have to hold to that doctrine. It's what drives our mission. It's what gives us distinctive. It's what uh, demonstrates our allegiance to the Lord, who himself claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. And so it takes courage today uh, in the face of ridicule, in the face of confusion, uh, in the face of outright denial, it takes courage to hold to doctrinal positions like Jesus is the only way of salvation. Another uh, need for courage today is the courage to confront sin and sinful behavior. Now, it's one thing to confront it in the abstract, to write an article or even to preach a sermon and to say that certain behavior is sinful. It's much more difficult to confront it personally. A couple of illustrations of this. For many years, I was uh, involved with baseball chapel and served as the chaplain to a Major League Baseball team. One of the things I learned early on is that in professional baseball, cohabitation is not considered sinful even by many Christians. There are really three levels of morality in baseball. There's play the field, which means have as many relationships with as many women as possible. There's monogamy but not married, or what I would describe as cohabitation or what the Bible calls fornication. And then there's being married. Now, Christian uh, baseball players would almost all agree that playing the field, having a lot of different girlfriends, being promiscuous in your sexuality is always wrong. And I never really got much argument or pushback on that issue. And they realize, would many, and would, they would say, almost all of them, that uh, marriage was the best way to express your sexuality and was God's perfect design. But what always troubled me was how many argued with me and how many felt that it was permissible to go with what they called a, a kind of a middle ground position. You see, here's the, here's the justification. Uh, baseball players play a long, grueling season. It's six months from, it's actually eight months from the beginning of spring training till up into nearly October. They uh, don't have days off in there, really. Oh, there's days off on the schedule, but those days are usually taken up with travel or, or recovery or, uh, re re or uh, treatment for injury or difficulty in that regard. So there are no true days off, really, for about eight months. So players say, well, I've found the woman that I'm going to marry, and we're even engaged, but we can't get married until the off-season. Well, that's not true. You can get married pretty quickly almost anywhere. Uh, but what they were saying was we can't have the wedding until the off-season. And so they would move in together during the season, cohabitate, uh, practice what the Bible calls fornication, and uh, then do that, but knowing they were going to get married the following off-season. Uh, when I would challenge them on this thinking, they would say, but, but Jeff, I'm, I'm committed to this girl. We're monogamous. We have only one relationship, and that's with each other. We're totally devoted for life. So doesn't that make this acceptable that we're following God's standard of one woman, one man, ma uh, in relationship sexually for life? And it, 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 it doesn't. It, it's not right. And I would try to help them to see why it wasn't right and how it was undermining their future marriage success and how it was creating a, setting a bad example for their children and how it was undermining their reputation among other Christians, especially those outside the game who didn't understand what they were doing. But I was constantly having to have the courage to confront this and to deal with it on a personal basis because these weren't evil people. These were people who thought they were doing the right thing or were trying to do what they perceived to be the right thing 
but we're doing the wrong thing. And confronting that was really challenging. I had another example of this just recently. I was preaching at a men's conference, and uh, uh, in that conference I talked pretty strongly about the issues of morality and the need for men to maintain their moral lives. Well, uh, I was at a re- this was at a retreat conference type facility where I assumed that most of the people who were there, if all, if not all the people that were there, were Christians. Well, uh, one of the guys came up to me uh, after the the session and said, uh, "Could I could I talk to you for a few minutes?" So we sat down together, and he said, uh, "You really called me out in the sermon tonight." And I said, "Oh, I did." He goes, "Yeah, I'm I'm living with a woman that I'm not married to." I said, "Well, tell me about that." And he said, "Well, I, I just became a Christian a few weeks ago." And I'm still trying to sort out what do I do about this relationship because she's become a Christian too. And we both come from really bad, difficult marriage backgrounds, and we're not sure we want to get married again. We, we're not sure we're, we're there yet, but uh, we've lived together for a while. We don't really have the means to live separately. And now that we're both Christians, we're, we're trying to sort out what we want to do, and we want to do what God wants us to do. And so how do we figure this out? Well, here's another example of having to confront sin, not in the abstract, but in the very personal, with a guy sitting right in front of me. Again, not so much a, a person being rebellious or mean-spirited or haughty or trying to arrogantly tell me that I was wrong about my position, but simply trying to say, how do I make this work? How do I, how do I figure this out? How do I learn to do what's right? And how important is it really that I do it and how urgently is it that I do it? So it takes courage to have those kind of conversations, to, to with compassion hold to your convictions, but at the same time move people toward what God wants them to do. Well, it takes courage to make decisions, hold doctrinal positions, and confront sin. But here's the fourth area. It takes courage to change a paradigm uh, in ministry and in leadership. Now, one of the things that, for example, has happened over the years is that many churches have changed the way they do evangelism or outreach. Uh, And I I certainly was a part of leading for this to happen. I, I saw evangelism strategies in the 1970s and 1980s, but as I was a church planter in the 1990s and a denominational executive up into the 2000s, I saw the need for change to take place and for us to give up old methods and adopt new methods and to continually be looking for new and more effective ways of introducing the gospel into people's lives and introducing people to faith in Jesus Christ. But especially among Southern Baptists, the sad reality is that a lot of our evangelism strategies today are simply not working. Uh, What people have given up and what they've used to replace it has simply not been effective. Our, uh, Our effectiveness at reaching new people with the gospel continues to go down year by year as our baptismal rate continues to decline. This tells me that there need to be some courageous leaders out there who will take the initiative to change the paradigm of evangelism once again. Uh, We have to find new ways to communicate the gospel so that more and more people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And whatever we're doing uh, that's not working, if we're defending it by saying, well, what used to work in the 80s doesn't work today, and yet we're doing something today that's working less than what worked in the 80s, it's not time to go back to the 80s, but it is time to say, what do we need to change? And then to have the courage to make those changes to do what needs to be done to be able to reach people again more effectively. It takes courage to change paradigms, to say that what we are doing simply isn't working and we have to do something different and we're going to keep trying different things until we find what will work in our community. That takes real courage. And then it also takes courage to uphold moral values, especially in American culture today. Of course, the biggest change in the last few years has been the legalization of same-sex marriage. 
uh, the the reality of this is is devastating to families. I met just yesterday with a, a ministry leader whose uh, daughter has been living in a lesbian relationship. Uh, she's just come home to them heartbroken because her partner has been committing adultery against their relationship with other women and uh, wants to have an open marriage relationship, which she refuses to have. Uh, she was willing to uh, enter into a same-sex marriage, but she thought that that would bring with it all of the same kind of love and commitment and devotion that she would have had in a heterosexual or traditional marriage. But she didn't find that. And I see the devastation in her life, in her parents' lives, uh, what it's uh, done in their church as it's cascaded out through the church of having to deal with this ministry leader's daughter. Um, it's just been tragic on every front. And it takes real courage in this culture to be able to stand up and say that same-sex marriage is just simply wrong. Uh, it may be legal, but it's still wrong. Uh, it may be uh, considered right by many, but it's still wrong. Uh, the Supreme Court may have even ruled on it, but the Supreme Court was just as wrong on this as they were on other issues like Dred Scott and other famous cases where they've aired. Uh, they're simply wrong. And it takes courage to stand up and say that. Now, again, it doesn't take courage to say that on a podcast as much as it does to take courage to sit down with a couple that comes to you for pastoral counseling or comes to you for marriage counseling or comes to you uh, for approval of their lifestyle choices or uh, comes in somehow into your church family's connections. It takes courage to sit down across the table from people and hold to your convictions and your standards in that context. So uh, it takes courage to hold mor uphold moral values. And then I'd also say it takes courage today to risk public vulnerability. What I mean by this is uh, it takes courage to give leadership in public. Uh, you know, recently when the seminary went through its land development process uh, for about four months at four different locations, at four different campuses, um, a protest group held up a sign that was a 40-foot banner. It was about six feet tall, about 40 feet long that said, uh, shame on Jeff Orge. And it had my phone number for people to call and protest. Uh, I, I drove by that banner every day for four months, and it was also at other campuses, so people would tell me they saw it at those locations. Uh, you know, that was painful. Uh, it was part of the process, and I understand I had to go through it, but that kind of public vulnerability of having your name put up on a banner and your phone number put up for people to call and protest your leadership, uh, that's, uh, that takes courage. And I, it's going to take even, it, takes, it takes courage to just risk that vulnerability, but any kind of public vulnerability where you're putting yourself out there in a blog or in a podcast or putting yourself out there in preaching or teaching or, or taking a stand in a classroom, uh, this kind of public vulnerability where you have to do what you do in front of people takes real courage. And then finally, it takes courage today, especially for pastors, to preach prophetically. It takes courage to say, thus says the Lord. Now, pastors should not preach uh, this way every single sermon. Uh, there are all kinds of messages that need to be preached in all kinds of situations. But there is also the need from time to time for a, for a pastor to simply stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, uh, what we're doing is wrong, what you're doing is sinful, and it has to stop. I think about America today and the fact that evangelical Christians are some of the greediest people uh, that uh, live on the planet that name the name of Christ. Uh, here we are living in American riches, and American Christians, evangelical Christians, give less than 3% of their income every year away to Christian work. Less than 3%. 
here we are with all of this wealth, all of these riches, all of this prosperity, and we're giving so little. And you say, well, Jeff, that's because you have a good job. You don't know what it's like out here. Yeah, I, I do know what it's like. Um, I, I, I've been around different parts of the world, and I've seen Christians living on far less than what we would consider a minimum wage even in America. And yet those Christians give generously and sacrificially to their church and to their friends and family to advance in, uh, the kingdom of God and to send missionaries and to build their churches. Uh, and to support their pastors. I, I see it. And so when I see so much sacrifice in so many other places where that people have so little, it reminds me that in our culture today, uh, we have so much, and we need to call people to account to be generous with what they have. So that's just one example of what I mean by prophetically preaching uh, truth and calling people to stand to the standard of God, even when it may be painful or countercultural or even rejected by many. So, uh, even though you may not be facing a fiery furnace today, if you have to make decisions, hold to doctrinal positions, confront sin, change paradigms, uphold moral values, or risk public, risk public vulnerability, or preach prophetically, you will need courage. So, in the face of all of this, it's important to know where the opposition's coming from and then how the opposition's going to intensify over time. Uh, the opposition that we face is, of course, primarily satanic and demonic. The Bible teaches that clearly. But satanic and demonic opposition expresses itself through cultural forces like the media, blogs, social media, and other means by which people could communicate and attack us. The opposition some of us are facing even extends into political systems. In America, we generally do not face much opposition from our government, but we do face some. But around the world, Christians face entrenched opposition from their governments, which are often dominated by leaders from other religions or from no religious background. And in those places, Christians face opposition that's uh, expressed even organizationally or institutionally from their government. And then surprisingly, uh, some Christian leaders today are even facing opposition from their church or their Christian community or their church community. Uh, it's sad, but some people who uh, claim to be Christians, in fact, some who claim to be prominent Christian leaders, um, are in the opposition that I've described earlier in these, call, in these seven examples I've given of why courage is still needed today. So opposition, yes, comes from satanic and demonic forces, but it expresses itself through cultural forces, media, blogs, social media, and other means of communication through political systems, some in our country, but certainly globally we see this on display. And then sadly, even from the Christian community, as Christians or Christian leaders oppose those things which I've described earlier, which require courage to stand against even in our own communities. Now, the levels of opposition that Christian leaders experience today could be summarized in three categories. Uh, first, there's what I call pressure. Uh, that's when you're accused of being intolerant or you're ridiculed for your faith or you lose popularity because of a position that you've taken. Uh, it's peer pressure that we feel to conform and that we uh, feel uh, uncomfortable about when we don't. So the first level of opposition is just simply pressure. The second level of opposition is harassment. That's when people bring financial or legal threat or even take financial or legal action against you, uh, you know, as a Christian. This can take many forms. It can be people saying that if you don't change your moral position, they're going to stop giving to your church. Or if you don't stop preaching on certain sins, they're going to 
reduce your salary or dismiss you from your position. Or in um, in my case, uh, it was neighbors uh, organizing an association to raise money and fund a fight to oppose our seminary's future development on its former location. Um, this kind of harassment is when people take financial or legal action that really does harm you. And then a third level of opposition besides pressure and harassment is persecution. Now, fortunately, in America today, we're not facing this, but all around the world, Christians are facing persecution. This is physical threats, uh, our torture, or even death that cause them to be uh, fearful in the Christian leadership they must give. I think about my friend, a Romanian pastor, who told me on many occasions that while he was serving in Romania under, uh, in the 1980s under a really wicked dictator named Ceausescu, that he was arrested. And on a number of occasions, a revolver was put to his head. And he was asked, do you renounce your Christian faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? <clears throat> and when he would say no, they'd pull the trigger, and of course the cylinder would snap and no bullet would fire. He never knew, though, when the bullet might actually be there. He faced that kind of torture and that kind of threat just because of his stand for Jesus Christ. So while we're fortunate in America today that we're not facing yet persecution, it's important for us to recognize that uh, our Christian brothers and sisters around the world are, and we need to stand with them, especially their leaders, as they've moved beyond pressure and harassment into this realm called persecution. So... Um, if you're facing that kind of opposition and you need to make the uh, courageous choices I've just described, how can you choose to lead more courageously? Well, let me give you four steps or four process steps that you can take to help you be a more courageous leader in the face of all of this. First, you have to decide if the issue is really important. I remember the first time a person told me or asked me, is this a hill you really want to die on? Uh, it really surprised me that this person asked me that question. He was a prosecuting attorney, and so he was quite rigid on a lot of things and quite insistent on upholding the law. Uh, but it was a, in a context of a church uh, debate that we were having, and he came to me and said, uh, Pastor, I just don't think this is all that important. Is this a hill you really want to die on? And that was the first time I'd ever heard that phrase, and it caused me to think, well, really, I never had really analyzed it that way. I, I thought you died on every hill. But it reminded me what a wise pastor once told me. He said, Jeff, compromise is not always wrong. That really struck me the wrong way when he told me that. I thought, well, yes, it is. I can't compromise even on this <laughs> because compromise is always wrong. But compromise is not always wrong. Now, there are some things that are simply uh, choices about things that need to be decided, and it's okay to go along with the crowd on those things. But leaders must know the difference between a preference, a principle, a conviction, and a law of God. God has established some things that cannot be compromised. God has erected some hills upon which you must be willing to die. Those laws of God cannot be compromised. But when it comes to our convictions, they sometimes can be adjusted. Certainly principles can be applied in different ways. And when something is only a preference, we need to be willing to be tolerant of other people who are making different choices than we are. So, first of all, decide if what you're facing is really important. Second, if you decide that it is important, make your choice and take full responsibility for it. Only fools expect to be bailed out when they make a courageous choice. Be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Make your choice and take full responsibility for it, trusting that whatever God allows is what you will receive, but you simply will not compromise. A few years ago, a friend told me this story. He said, 
I know exactly when my father became a real man in my eyes. He said I was about eight or nine years old. My father was a pastor. And I always wondered, you know, is my dad kind of soft? Is he a real man? Is he as tough as the other guys in my church that were lumberjacks and mechanics and people that worked, that drove big trucks and did things like that? He said one uh, day my dad came home on a, on, a, on, a, uh, on a Friday night. And he said, tomorrow I'm going to be gone all day meeting with church people. And Sunday there's going to be a very difficult service. And at the end of that service, I may not be the pastor of the church any longer, and we may have to move out of this parsonage. But I want you to know that I'm making a decision that I simply uh, have to stand on. I, I can't compromise it. See, what had happened was that Friday afternoon, he had been riding in a pickup truck with his deacon chairman when their pickup hit a bump, and the glove box popped open, and a KKK hood fell out of that glove box. And the pastor picked it up and said, to his deacon chairman, is this yours? And he said, yes. And he said, are you a mem member of the Klan? He said, yes, I am. And he said, well, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go and talk to all the deacons tomorrow. And on Sunday morning, one of two things is going to take place. Either you and anyone else you've influenced in our church to be a part of this movement are going to repent publicly and renounce this racism, or you're going to be kicked out of our church, or I'm going to be forced out as pastor. But this will not stand. And so that Sunday morning, the pastor preached a sermon and revealed what he knew and called his deacon chairman and any other men in the church that were a part of the Klan to account. Now, the good news was, on that particular day, uh, there was significant repentance and there was, uh, there was uh, a movement of God that took place in the church and, and over the next few weeks uh, it continued in the church and many good results came from that man taking a stand. But my friend told me, he said, that was the day my dad became a man because I watched someone for the first time in my life stand up for what they believed, knowing that it could cost them everything. And they did it. And even though it had a good ending, it didn't have to have a good ending. And that's the day I knew my daddy was a man. So you take your choice and you, you, take, you make your choice and you take full responsibility for it, just like that pastor, knowing that if you get to keep your job, you keep it. If you don't, you don't. Uh, if your family has to move, they have to move. But what has to be done has to be done. No compromise. Third, communicate your position and accept your consequences. Now, those consequences can be many and varied. In the case of this story I've just told, the consequences were that he got to continue in his pastoral duties, but he had a lot of work over the next few weeks to do to work through the process of helping people to get their lives right with God on this issue, and then also to uh, have some very hard discussions and hard conversations with people who couldn't go along with what was happening. I think about another friend of mine who made a courageous choice. He, he uh, was offered a job in his company that required him to promote uh, a community giving a community contribution or a community fund that uh, provided resources to support abortions. Uh, he told his boss, I'll take the position, but when it comes to supporting that particular issue, I can't promote that, I can't lead that. And his boss said, don't worry about it, we'll assign that to somebody else. So he took this significant promotion, and a few weeks later, uh, he got a note from his boss and said, hey, it's time to kick off the community fund drive. And he said, hey, I thought we had a conversation about this. I can't do that. And he said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, no, I was serious. I, I can't do that. Uh, it violates a deep conviction I have about the sanctity of life. Now, I don't mind that the company supports the community fund. I won't protest that, but I personally will not give to it, and I can't be the one who leads the promotion of it. 
he knew that day that he could be demoted, he could lose his job, he could lose the respect of his coworkers, he could lose the confidence of his boss. But he was willing to accept the consequences of that choice that day because he simply couldn't compromise his position. His boss then said a really funny thing. He said, you know, your problem, your problem is you keep letting your religion affect your life. <laughs> and my friend said, I kind of thought that was the point. Well, it is the point. Uh, our religion, or more specifically our Christian faith, is supposed to affect our lives. And in this case, it affected this man's convictions about what he could support and what he could publicly uh, advocate for and what he could personally be involved in financially. Well, finally, after you decide if the issue is important, and if it is, you make your choice and accept your and take full responsibility for it and then accept the consequences that come your way, whatever they may be, then finally, you have to be prepared to suffer. Now, <clears throat> sometimes uh, when you take a stand, the results are positive, but sometimes they're not. I think about the book of Acts. Uh, there's two stories that intrigue me. The first one's in Philippi. Paul was imprisoned, and he had a worship service there. And uh, while he was having that worship service, the Bible says while they were singing and praying, an earthquake came, and all their shackles were released, and they walked out of that prison free men. Well, you turn the page, though. Uh, I turn a few pages over in the book of Acts, and Paul is once again arrested, and he's once again imprisoned. But this time, the Bible says, he languished there for two years waiting for a trial to happen or to be released. Two years. One day I was reading that, and I just closed my Bible, and I prayed this prayer. Lord, why no earthquake? I mean, the first time Paul got imprisoned in Philippi, you sent an earthquake the first night and got him out and kept him preaching. But this time, you left him in prison for two long years. Think about it. Sometimes when you do what's right and you suffer for it, God sends an earthquake. But sometimes when you do what's right and you suffer for it, no earthquake comes. Deciding to be a courageous leader means that you decide that something is important, that you will make your choice to stand on a particular position and take full responsibility for that choice. That you will receive whatever consequences come your way. And that you are prepared even to suffer. Recognizing that God is not obligated to deliver you from every difficulty. Be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Say, we will not bow down. If God delivers us, we will be celebrating. If he does not we will still not bow down, and someday we will with him still be celebrating. So God has called us to be courageous leaders. He's given us several areas of leadership challenge that do require courage today. We know where our opposition comes from, and we feel it intensifying around us. In the context of leadership today, courage is still needed. Make the right choices. Make courageous choices and live out a life of courageous leadership. Thanks for listening today, and I hope this helps you to be a stronger leader in a difficult day in which we live.